good. So I asked the question and I said, so I'd want to know that if Sam Childers was coming out to speak to our youth and to our church, that he'd actually really grappled long and hard with that fundamental question. Have you? And it was met by an awkward silence on the phone. Which begs the question, doesn't it? In an ever-changing world, what posture should would-be followers of Jesus adopt? You see, we've been talking about skinny roads. Jesus said, wide is the path that leads to destruction and pain and suffering and ultimately away from God. But narrow is the path that leads to life, the good life, the godly life, the life-giving life. It begins now and reaches into the age to come. And very few people, he said, walk along it. What does it mean? You see, followers of Jesus are the ones who have put their hands up and they've said, we want to reflect him back into the world. And we're the first ones to admit that we are broken. We don't have it all right. There is a part of us that wants to do what we want to do, that there's evil and envy and jealousy and anger that runs through our blood as well. But we acknowledge that we are broken just like the next person and we need God's forgiveness and his help and his life. And as a result of that, if you like, God reaches down and he starts to fix their wanters. They adopt this position of, as Peter, one of Jesus' followers says, be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. Your purpose is to announce the virtuous deeds of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light. In fact, a would-be follower of Jesus looks forward to a time when heaven comes to earth, when Jesus returns and there is no more pain, no more suffering. The, the old order is gone and a new order has come. So how, in the meantime, should would-be followers of Jesus posture themselves? Should they adopt this posture, indifferent to the world around about? Should they adopt this posture, prayerful Deep consternation. Should they adopt this posture? The one that hates and says God judges and and posters that out for the community to see. Should they adopt this posture? The one of we're just the peace loving ones that don't want to get involved in all of those things. Or should they posture themselves like this? The ones who pretty much adopt the culture that's standard around about and actually has a veneer of Jesus that kind of just wraps on top of it, oozes down, trickles in and really reflects back to the culture the very thing that the culture is saying to them. How should would-be followers of Jesus do that? Have you noticed that on Tuesday we have, have you heard about the census that's coming? In fact, uh, Yvonne sent me this photograph for shopping at Coles. There's a group of people who are saying, now this is the first time in our census taking of where no religion is going to be put at the top of that, that faith-building sort of uh, part of the census. And, and in fact, they're promoting and saying, what we want you to do is if you don't have a faith, put down no religion. Uh, which just indicates to uh, any follower of Jesus that, that, that the society is changing, the culture is shifting, and that's just part of the landscape in which we live. In fact, uh, Christianity is still the, the largest, if you like, faith uh, in Australia. 61% typically on a census say, I am a Christian. Um, and all the other religions together, Buddhism, the second largest one, 2.4%, gathered into that. But there is a growing number of people who are saying, I don't affiliate with any organized 
religion at all. In fact, since 1976, the population, even though the church attendance relatively the same population has grown. And so the percentages are dropping and it means that there's a shift in the landscape of our culture. And on top of that, with, if you like, the number of people ticking Christianity dropping and, and church attendance at the same time, the no religions increasing, which doesn't mean that people are against God, if you like. It's just that for many of them, they just say, I don't organize myself around any religious structural framework. I might be spiritual, but it doesn't mean that I'm against the idea of God, which begs the question, what did people in AD 40 who first heard about Jesus, how did they posture themselves in the empire when, when the, they were the vast minority? In fact, on this big, if that represents the 60 million people within the Roman Empire, first followers of Jesus in AD 40, and that little white dot is even far too large. But yet by AD 350, there was one in two people in the Roman Empire who said, I actually identify with following this person, Jesus. At the Battle of Milvian, where Constantine had seen a vision, if you like, of a cross in the sky, put it on his shields, won the battle, and then converted to Christianity. And then in an edict of 313, the edict of, of Milan that said, Christianity is no longer outlawed within the empire. If you like, Constantine was only reflecting back what the majority of the culture was now saying, that if you like, this new age had dawned when the focal point by which through people understood society and culture around them was known as, if you like, for the next 1700 years, Christendom. But in the last 100 years, in particular the last 50, 60 years here in Australia, there's been a pushing apart, a pulling apart of those mores over the last 1,700 years. We call it secularism, secularism, which if you like the idea of religious ideology is being pushed to the margins. And now if you like, there's a new materialism and consumerism, which is pulling apart. And all of a sudden, would-be followers of Jesus are saying, how do we posture ourselves in an ever-changing culture. Don't you ask that intuitively? If you're here this morning and you identify with following Jesus, or maybe you're scratching around the edges and you're wondering, where does God fit into the bigger picture? These are the things that we're all experiencing right now in our culture. And so Jesus said these words, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. He gave his followers a vocation. I want you to be light. But what does it mean to shine that light? So over the next three weeks, what I'm endeavoring to do in that shifting landscape is I want to talk about how would someone want to build and how do we think about a framework by which anyone who's a follower of Jesus might be able to say, that's the kind of framework that I need to adhere to in order to be a Jesus kind of follower. This week, I want to talk about the idea of visible. Next week, tightrope walking. What does it mean to walk a tightrope as a follower of Jesus? And then the third week, talking about third ways. And in that third ways, I want to talk about sexuality. And in particular, just because I love being just straight down the line and non-controversial, I want to talk about homosexuality. Have you noticed that same-sex marriage is part of our landscape and decision-making and conversation in our culture right now? So I am so looking forward to that week three to just, you know, bring out all of the conversations around that and try and actually hit away was what would a would-be follower of Jesus say about adopting third ways that might actually steer pathways and even begin to engage with that kind of question. So it's not going to happen there on that. We're going to probably put a Sunday at six together as well to flesh out some different conversations. But that is where we are going. Are you ready? Are you ready? 
All right, so let's just press into it this morning. I want to start by actually framing up for you two stories that Jesus told, one about three men and then one about two men and then next week one about one man. Sorry, ladies, I'm not trying to be sexist, but this is just the, the conversations that Jesus was happening, was, was having when he walked the earth with some particular men at that time. And so I want to start by building a framework for us and you get to fill in the pieces of the decor and what happens in the rooms. But over the next three weeks, I want to build a framework. So the first one starts like this. Jesus was actually asked a question by a religious leader. He was a lawyer, if you like, Andy. And he came with a really practical question to Jesus and said, what must I do to enter into the age of the life to come, eternal life? What must I do to enter it? And Jesus asks him a, a responsive question. Well, you're a lawyer. You read Torah, God's ways. What I want you to do is you tell me. And he says, in, as a good Jewish lawyer, he just quotes the Shema. He said, well, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and to love your neighbor as yourself. It was the prayer life, if you like, of a Jewish person that still continues on to today. If you're like, hear, O Israel, Yahweh is one, <clears throat> Yahweh is God, and you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Jesus heard this response, and he said, that's brilliant. Go and do it, and you will live. But then the lawyer comes back, being the lawyer that he was, and says, but I, I want to justify, if you like, in a public space, the response you've given, and why I even asked this question in the first place. It's like a joust with Jesus. And so he extends it and he says, well, technically speaking then, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told this question, first framing story. He said, a man, it was assumed that the lawyer would have thought Jewish, was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, lowest city in the world. And he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. Now that scenario is not an uncommon one even to, to today. In fact, we call it the West Bank. In fact, if you were to walk around that place in Jesus' day and age, you would prefer to go through the Jordan Valley rather than go straight through a place called Samaria because that's the place filled with all those half-castes, those other people who identify with being God's real people and the ones who point their fingers at us, a Jewish person would have thought. And, and so what happened along the way is that they would go around the outside so they didn't have to pass on the way through banditry was still common in that time. This is a common scenario. But then it goes on, Jesus says, by chance though, a priest came along and when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A Levite, a temple assistant, came by that place and he saw him too lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Now, understand anything about temple practice, priests and Levites, is one of the convictions that they had is that they didn't want to get contaminated by the things of this world that would make them impure. A dead body or a potential dead body on their way to, towards Jerusalem would spell profound trouble for them. They would become ceremonially unclean if they touched a dead body. So the practical, obvious thing to do in that situation, would to be subvert God's laws of love and actually abide to the ones about ritual purity because they didn't want to be contaminated and just walk on by. Pause. There's always a third person. And so maybe the lawyer was thinking, now maybe I'll become the, the hero of this particular story because I'm answering the questions well. And Jesus said this. 
Then a traveling Samaritan, gulp, came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Staggering. An oxymoron that a Samaritan would be actually being a good one attending to a Jewish man. So then Jesus, at the pregnant pause of this moment, turns back to the lawyer and says, asks him a simple question. Which one of these three do you think turned out to be the neighbor of the man who was set upon by the brigands? Very difficult question, I imagine. To which the Jewish lawyer responds, couldn't even say the name Samaritan. Such was the bubbling fury towards that people group. The one, the one gagging the words out. The one who showed mercy on him. Jesus said, well, go and do the same. Go and do the same. See, this story isn't just a moralizing story about a good Samaritan that's made its way into the common vernacular, even here in Australia, where someone says, that's a good thing you did. You're a good Samaritan. This isn't even talking about racial divides. This is asking a profound question to a Jewish law-abiding, Torah-keeping man, in which he's really essentially asking, Jesus, how far does God's Torah, how far am I obligated to actually apply Torah to just those on the inside, my own people? Or is it to go beyond that? And Jesus, by making the Jewish man, if you like, subordinate to the Samaritan who could do Torah and actually, if you like, apply it in a boundless way, if you like, switches the tables completely. So it's clear and obvious that Jesus is making the profound statement to a Jewish person that if a Samaritan can do that, then you should do likewise. There is no boundary. There are no borders by which God's Torah and law of love keeping can actually be contained. Wow. Flips the tables. First framework, if you like, for understanding how do I posture myself in a would-be world that's ever-changing. You see, those first followers of Jesus, having heard these words and adopted them, they actually imbued themselves with this sense of passion and love for humanity that it was obvious. In the mid-200s, Dionysius, having commented and seen the plagues that ravaged all the different cities of Rome, writes this about his fellow compatriots. We lost man, woman, brother and sister as the Romans were running out of that plague infested cities and towns. The Christian people would run back in, if you like, and they would nurse and keep and tend to the dying and the sick, even if the disease then infiltrated them and they caught it and died themselves. Why? Because they believed that there was a God who demonstrated love through sacrifice. So they wanted to do exactly the same. So believing in a life and the age and the resurrection to come that they gave their lives willingly. First pillar, anchored down, secured deep, is this conviction and this sense that there was a God who loves freely and willingly. So therefore, those first followers of Jesus were known as lovers of humanity. 